I'm going to start off by naming this podcast The Illegal Act of Banging Dead People because I don't know how else to say it. Um, we're going to be talking about necrophilia. And I'm going to cover, instead of one person, I'm going to cover two serial killers. We're really into it. And so you're like, wow, Sophia, you're going really dark. Well, yeah, it's a true crime podcast and we are going to get dark. Now, before we get into our cases today, I do want to do a deep dive on some history, more like some dark history. I'm not going to sugarcoat this episode, but we're going to be talking about cannibalism, necrophilia, and a lot of murders. I mean, just violence on women once again. Um, so it's going to be a very explicit episode. So if you are not feeling it, I would listen to something else. So with that being said, hold tight because we're on to another episode of Not Another Scary Story. Not another Scary story. Necrophilia, what is it? Necrophilia is a sexual intercourse with or attraction toward corpses. So where did it start? So like I said, I did a deep dive on the history of necrophilia. And now I kind of want to gouge my eyeballs out with the spoon because what the fuck? Let's start with the meaning of the word necrophilia. It comes from the Greek word necros, meaning corpse, and philia, love. So the love of the dead, essentially. Necrophilia is a paraphilia whereby the perpetrator gets sexual pleasure in having sex with the dead. It's also known as necrophilism, necrologina, necroctios, necrophlesis, thanatophilia. Listen, I'm reading this off a list, so I know for a fact that I'm butchering all these words, but um, just know I tried my best, okay? It's seen a lot in cases that are associated with numbers of like sadism, cannibalism, vampirism. That's where, you know, they drink the blood of the person or animal. Necrophagia, which is eating the flesh of the dead. Necro, what's called necro pedophilia, which is sexual attraction to corpses of children, and necrosophilia, which is sexual attraction to corpses or killing of animals, also known as necrobestiality, which, wow, I'm not going that direction. I'm just sticking with one of the necros, and that's necrophilia. But there's a lot of necrophilias, uh, essentially is what I'm trying to say. I mean, when I was reading this list, I was like, damn, everyone just needs to get like a hobby that doesn't involve killing people or eating their bodies. Just, just get a hobby like crocheting or knitting. It's honestly really easy to get into knitting, okay? Very often, the corpses that are used for sexual purposes are not fresh, but rather dug up from graves in a putrefied or mummified condition. Some prefer just bones. Necrophagists actually feed on decaying dead bodies to get sexual pleasures. Think of the British people when they stole the mummies from Egypt and had their bodies exhumed, where many of them raped the dead or just straight up ate them. Like, it's... Look into it. It's disturbing, but that that was a thing. And before you're like, well, isn't that same thing as cannibalism? Cannibalism are are people who like to eat fresh meat. A vast spectrum of necrophagists is seen from those who merely just want to lick the genitals or breasts of a dead person to persons who just want to devour specific body parts um, to necrophiles who just want to eat the whole body. That's like a lot, man. That's again, what the hell? So surprisingly, necrophilia dates back hundreds and thousands of years, and it's been documented in Greek mythology, ancient cultures, the Greco-Roman period, the Middle Ages, and in the modern era. 
Mortuary attendants and funeral home workers have been known to be caught sexually assaulting corpses, and there have been individuals who have dug up graves in order to obtain a dead body to have sex with. Um, more commonly known individuals who have dug up graves in order to do all this are like Ed Gain, Ed Kemper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway. They've all taken like sexual advantages of dead victims. Those are just like the most popular serial killers that were into this. According to the stat, people are saying that necrophilia is rarer than sexual homicide. However, the true prevalence of necrophilia is unknown given that its paraphilia is most often carried out in secret with the victim unable to report the act. Essentially, the numbers could be higher, but again, because these are people who have passed away, no one can really report the acts. So the acts are usually caught midway or it was accidentally revealed. So the numbers could be higher than what we are given on the internet. So there's also this thing called paraphilic disorder where it involves an unconsenting adult who is usually asleep or drugged in the state of comatose and then they take advantage, rape uh, them in their sleep. Other paraphilic or disorders involving non-consensual individuals is characterized by a persistent and intense pattern of atypical sexual arousal. So manifested by sexual thoughts, fantasies, urges, or behaviors in which the focus of the arousal pattern involves others who are unwilling or unable to consent. Psychoanalytical theories suggest unconscious suppressed hostility towards parental figures and sadistic impulses to explore the mother's body. The offender takes revenge on a female figure, the dead female symbolizing mother or spouse by ravishing her. So essentially, it's their way of getting quote-unquote power back from their maternal figures that could have been abusive or just like they're a sadistic way of ownership of someone who cannot fight back. To this date, there aren't a lot of well understood or documented research in terms of necrophilia. So a lot of the information that I'm giving to you, I will say take with a grain of salt. I am not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. However, I am someone who has a working brain and I can put two and two together. My thing is, it's that I don't know the science behind why a necrophiliac would do what he does. I don't have the answers, essentially, what I'm trying to say. I don't know. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that if you think it's a good idea, just don't. Just don't do it. Stop it. Get some help. Earlier on, I mentioned sexual homicide. What is it? Lust murder is also called sexual homicide. It is a homicide which occurs in tandem with either an overt sexual assault or sexually symbolic behavior. Lust murder is associated with the paraphilic term erotophonophilia, which is sexual arousal or gratification containment to the death of a human being. So a lot of our serial killers commit sexual homicide, but not all serial killers commit necrophilia. A case that is also popular among this topic is the disappearance of the body of Marilyn Monroe. So for those who don't know, Marilyn Monroe's body went missing for over six hours. Um, and when her body was found and returned to the morgue, there were signs of sexual assault. Tests came back that there were four different DNA samples from semen and her body was littered with scratches and contusions. In a historical sense, necrophilia was considered a crime to punish. From a serial killer's point of view, it was their way of getting back at women for the way they were treated growing up. A lot of it could be like abuse from the mother. Um, so it's their way of, like I said, 
quote-unquote finding power against women who could not put up a fight. Interesting history fact, since we're already doing a deep dive on history. Do you guys know of King Charlemagne? For a lot of you guys, I feel like you would know who this man is. But he was one of the reasons why we have the spread of literature, the spread of Christianity. He was the one that kind of united a lot of lands during the first century AD. So he went by Charlemagne or Charles the Great. He um, was the king of the Franks from 768 and then he became king of Lombards from 774 and he was also the emperor of Rome from 880. He was huge and he's like a big figure. I wouldn't necessarily consider him a holy figure like growing up we learned a lot about this guy in our Catholic schools. So he was, he, the Catholics love this guy because he was one of the reasons why Christianity was spread and taught throughout Europe. He's a big figure. Turns out when I was doing research on necrophilia and historical figures, this guy was not only into incest, but he was also a necrophiliac. He would sleep with his dead wife. And then when he could no longer do that, he ended up sleeping with his sister. And in fact, it was said that he fathered upon a child with her. And you're like, sources, give me sources. I don't believe this shit. So it was said Charlemagne reportedly had a thing with sleeping with corpses, right? And apparently there's a variety of texts from the 9th century to refer to Charlemagne's repeatedly engaging in, but refusing for a long time to confess to some quote-unquote unspeakable sin. He eventually got it off his chest and sought absolution for what some modern scholars think was a pre-election for necrophilia. That gave rise to legends in which Charlemagne's partiality to corpses extended from sexually satisfying his lust with random corpses to sleeping with his wife's corpse after her death. Usually in my, if not in all of my episodes, I link down sources, but I read like this whole German text about this, and this is insane. And you're like, well, he didn't explicitly say he slept with corpses. Well, let's let me take you back into the day of medieval times, okay? Especially within early Christianity and Catholic Church. What was the one sin that was worse than murdering someone? What is the one unspeakable sin? It was sleeping with the dead. That was like a big no-no. Okay, so now that we got the history lesson out of the way, let's get into our two guys. So our first guy that we're going to talk about, he's from France. Shout out to you, France. You sure know how to pick them. He was considered the worst of them all, according to the internet. Personally, I believe Dahmer was the worst necrophiliac, but I digress. This man goes by, he was nicknamed the Vampire of Moy or Victor Ardison. Listen, before I continue, I do not speak any French, so I will 100% sure butcher some of these words. Antoine Victor Artisan was born on September 5th, 1872 at Moy in province in southeastern France to Elizabeth Eponine Poiré. Elizabeth's lover, aka Victor's father, went out to go milk a cow, never returned. Turns out the cow was in like some other farmer's field, so he was absent in his life. She later married Honoré Artisan and they lived at 15th Grand Rue in village of Moy. His mother wasn't the most mother of them all. She played wild a mole with his head quite a bit. And what is something that most serial killers have in common when they're kids? Head trauma. I think we've established this a bit. Something that we see a lot of within our cases is that when serial killers were young, they get a lot of head injuries. So whether that was from abuse falling off a swing or a bike or what have you. Head injuries at a young age will affect you. So guys, this is your friendly PSA to not drop your kids or this could be your condom ad too. Like we love kids. Kids are great. But if you know you're just going to play drums with your kids' heads and they turn out to be like the worst people ever, then just 
don't have kids. I mean, look at Victor. He turned out to be just a just a great guy. Even his stepdad was like, honey, I think you're smacking the kid around too much. Later on in the press, his stepdad believes that Victor's mother's abuse attributed him to being a fucking weirdo. So then one day, Elizabeth was like, you know what? I have to go milk a cow. And she up and left Honore to raise Victor by himself. R.I.P. My guy, that's, that's rough. But it was said that one of the reasons why she left him was because he was abusive. Like, men, don't hit your wife period. Just don't. You just look like an a-hole for doing that. So, like, I don't blame her for leaving. So, Victor's dad just kind of took out his sorrows by sleeping around with women. He turned his home into a squalor um, where he would let beggars just come and live. Several people were sharing and sleeping together in straw beds. All I'm thinking of is all the lice. Man, all the lice. Ugh. And here I thought sharing a room with my older sister growing up was bad. This is worse. Oh, here's a fun tidbit about our guy, Victor. He often masturbated and then he drank his own sperm because, and I quote, it's a pity to let it go to waste. You French people know how to pick them. You really do. <laughs> what? Ugh. Who? Who does that? Who? He was also known as like a deviant in his village and would often chase after girls. Victor would then ask them to marry him and they would tell him no and laugh at him. He would also stalk these girls and when he found that they had urinated in a particular place, he would wait for them to leave and then lick up the urine whilst masturbating. What in the actual flying titty shit fuck is this? Like, who does this? Who? Who? <laughs> I felt like a fucking owl. <laughs> During this act, he would not attempt to hide and he did not care if other people saw him do it. He also worked on a Sunday giving fellatio to men of the village, but never sodomy or bestiality. Gotta get that vitamin D somehow, I guess. Sophia, just stop it. Get help. Wow, why would you say that? So then when he was like 10 years old, the gravedigger in his village died. So his dad was like, cool, a job. This was in the year 1882, by the way, just throwing that out there. So with only four or five barrels a month in Moy, it was not a rewarding or well-paid job, but Honore Artisan accepted the position and would take along his 10-year-old stepson to help him. Just don't bring your kid to do this kind of job seriously just don't several years later honore artisan fell into a pit and injured his foot and had such a fright that he gave up on the job and victor assumed the position on his own so this kid is just like 12 years old just vibing in a graveyard and it was during this time that he began to desecrate the graves of women and young girls he later confessed to digging up around 10 graves and sexually interfering with the corpses in 1893 he was called to join the regiment and honore was once again given the job of town gravedigger. Victor was entrusted with guarding the powder kegs at a military prison. However, he soon deserted the regiment to work as a mason in Canes, where he earned two francs every 30 days. I know in some places, if you abandon your position in the military, you would get punished severely, like jail. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. He was happy there, but he was considered lazy and ineffective at his job and left after one week. He then decided to return to Moy, where he was arrested by the police for desertion. And at the age of 20, he was sent to Marseille, where he was held in the military prison. He was eventually released after 100 days of confinement and was judged irresponsible but reformed and promptly returned to the family home in Moy, which we all knew this where this is gonna go so i'm talking this is gonna ugh, why do you just release 
this guy he's just a crackhead like he's worse so he began to resume his nocturnal activities using his father's keys to access the gate and gain entry to the cemetery he would dig the grave using a shovel as well as his bare hands and remove the lid of the coffin then he undid the shroud and sat the corpse in an upright position this is your warning i'm about to read some really graphic shit so cover your eyes close your ears I don't know. So then he'd proceed to suck the breasts and the vagina whilst talking to the corpse. According to his confession, he regularly spoke to the corpses and was genuinely upset when they would not respond. I literally have no words to say on this matter. Like, you are not human to do this. Who goes into a graveyard, digs up somebody, and then props them up like a doll, and then just proceeds to assault their body, and then acting as if this is normal? Who does this? Apparently fucking Victor. He later told the doctors at, in jail that he had a fascination with breasts, and he enjoyed licking the breasts and the clitoris of the corpses. Sometimes he'd rape the corpses, at other times he just abused it, then he placed everything back as it was and left. Age did not matter to him. He would dig up the graves of recently buried women and young girls. When his father gave up the grave digging job, he no longer had access to the key gate, to the gate key, but he simply resorted to climbing over the low wall of the cemetery. Um, here's, here's my question. Where's the night watch? Where's like the police that's walking up and down the streets of the village? Like, it's a village, right? There should be some kind of like night watch that just, I don't know. Like, how did nobody hear or see anything? Like, did no one not notice that the graves were tampered with? Or is that just me being crazy to ask these kind of questions? I don't know. In 1900s, he dug up a young girl named Berth because she had such beautiful breasts. Artisan later told the doctors that he had never encountered such pleasure as he did with her corpse, and then he visited her, her grave regularly over several evenings, something he had never done until that point. When I die, I don't want to be buried. After reading this, I'm like, just tie a rock to my ankle and feed me to the fish because I don't want this happening to me. Throw me in a lava pit, cremate me actually, or like put me in some cement. On February 22nd, 1901, he dug up the grave of a 14-year-old girl called Leon who had previously died on the 20th. The police wrote up a report on the incident stating the corpse did not appear to have been touched. He would often follow the funerals to see if the recently deceased was female and would often acquire and would often inquire about the illness they succumbed to. He once dug up two sisters but could not carry them home. Gabrielle, a 13-year-old girl, died on April 28th and was buried in the Moy Cemetery. She was considered very pretty and because of this, Artisan wanted to have her. Again, jail, more like the electric chair. After digging up her body, he found it was too heavy to carry, so he detached the head from the corpse with a pocket knife and then carried it under his arm without wrapping it and kept it at his father's house. <sighs> So, clearly, this man had a hobby. It was not knitting. He had eventually mummified and he abused it for a long time, kissing it. That's what he did with it. Let me just get this straight. Just, just to let me rant for a second. You mean to tell me that the Catholic Church burned women for hundreds of years for having a simple mole on their cheek? But this guy got away with this? Like, men like him? We're able just to vibe and and what he should have been born during the inquisition era which interesting fact the inquisition ended in 1834 which not that anyone asked but the inquisition literally lasted for over 600 years you guys are getting a lot of history today i'm really proud of you <sighs> mental check how are you all doing <laughs> i know this is a bit much to handle but you know hang in there you're doing great we're not even a fourth way 
through our cases today so rock on my rock on so when the putrefaction set in there were complaints about the smell and he'd simply just get rid of his victims remains and dug up fresher corpse in september 1901 a three and a half year old known as louise died she was described as a pretty little girl and victor decided to dig up her grave three years old she was three years old. So he took her body, placed it in a bag, taking it to his house where he put her in the attic. He laid it on some straw and always went there whenever his father was absent from the house. For more than a week, he raped Louise's body until putrefaction set in and after eight days, he could no longer touch it. He attempted to separate the head but could not. Once again, the neighbors began to complain about the smell coming from the artisan's house and Honore told them it was garbage which he had placed in the attic. To stop after these complaints, he entered the attic to remove the garbage. So up the stairs, Honori went and was like, what the fuck is happening with my life? Like, where did I go wrong? I can't believe this is what I'm doing. To literally finding something just laying in the straw. And he's like freaking out. Grabbing a shovel, he slowly makes his way to the figure on the ground and he struck it thinking it was some animal. When he fully realized that it was the body of Louise, he went and reported it to the police. After questioning Honore, the police searched for Victor and placed him under arrest. Victor was then charged with multiple counts of exhumation and violation of dead bodies and sent to Dragunan Jail. Dragunan? Dragunan Jail? Dude, it sounds like a dragon jail, okay? It's spelled D-R-A-G U-I-G-N-A-N. Help me out. There he was examined by the prison doctor, Bose, and Dr. Beltrude of the insane asylum at Pierre Faduvar. These men conducted the forensic examination of Artisan and questioned him about his sexual dysfunction and aberrant behavior. They found that he rarely got angry over things and admitted that he never cried, and he never felt attachment or affection for anyone, only the dead. They discovered how he was able to withstand the putrid decaying smell of the bodies he had sex with when they tested his senses and found that he had no sense of smell or taste. When he spoke, his words were often accompanied with the strange hiccup laugh and he admitted to the doctors he enjoyed prison especially the cigarettes he was given the bed and the meals he was receiving question how is this guy not shanked like hello is this is being shanked in jail for assaulting children or dead bodies like just an american thing is that just what we do in america because listen i've listened to cases from all around the world where the most abhorrent of killers and perpetrators just don't get stabbed like i'm talking i listened to cases from like japan Korea, India, Philippines, England, and the worst people, I'm talking about like child kidnappers and serial killers and rapists who just chillin' in jail. Whereas in America, like if you fuck with kids, you get stabbed. So I'm just saying maybe it's an American thing, but also how did this guy not get stabbed? Sorry, I had to go on a rant. So he ended up telling the doctors he wanted to steal another corpse to replace Louise, but he was caught before he was able to. Victor claimed that he had sex with over a hundred corpses and often referred to the girls as his fiance and his bride he did not show remorse or regret for his crimes he simply promised to give up his passion for the dead which is like i can't imagine just the doctors and the police and the investigators just sitting across from him and he's like yeah you know what i'm just gonna give it up like water off his back there mm, i'm not gonna say it I'm not gonna say it this is literally just to him being so delusional like i thought i was 
I was bad with my delusions, but this is delusionism at its worst. Listen, I know that's not a real word, but several experts at the time examined Victor Ardinson in prison and commented on his unusual proclivity for dead. Dr. Alexis Eckelard referred to him as a degenerate impulsive sadist and necrophile, whilst Dr. Richard von Kraft Ebning called him a moron void of any moral sense. Honestly, that sums it up. Because of his crimes, he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital at Perfois de Var. Victor Artisan died on March 9th, 1944 at Province Alps Côte d'Azur, age 71. How did he end up just vibing in jail until 71? Why didn't he get the death penalty? Why, why wasn't he stabbed? So this case would be considered a case of serial necrophile. He didn't murder people, but he did rape their bodies. So I can understand why he didn't get the death penalty but still at the same time like this is a madman i'm just saying you know what i'm gonna stop asking questions because if i ask stupid questions i'm gonna get stupid answers hey germany this one goes out to you so let's talk about someone who is a serial killer and a necrophiliac but from germany this guy straight up looks like the knockoff version of hitler or maybe it was like the other way around hold up let me let me see who came first okay so peter was born in 1883 and hitler was born in 1889 so Hitler was the knockoff rat version of Peter. It's not really saying much. They both look like thumbs. So before you're like, well, who's Peter? Why are you talking about Hitler? Da, da, da. Okay, today's case, we're talking about a guy who's from Germany and his name is Peter Curtin, who was born on May 26, 1883. And when you look at him, like I saw a picture of him, he literally looks like Hitler. And so that's why I was like, oh, who came first? The chicken or the egg? So he came first and then Hitler came after. Seriously, just take a minute and look him up. You see what I mean? He literally looks like Hitler. Anyways, moving on. So he was born May 26th and he had 13 siblings, which here I thought having six siblings was a lot. I was the second oldest of seven. Flex. I wasn't really a flex. I got bullied a lot by my siblings. To say his childhood was a happy one would be an understatement. His entire family lived in constant fear of their father. His father was a molder and a drunkard and he would come home after work in just fits of rage and beat his children and his wife where he would then go and rape his wife in front of his children. It was said down the line he would assault his own daughters because this was the 19th century germany divorce wasn't an option so his mother had to endure the marriage which means his children had to endure their father's just horrific abuse they were also impoverished so even if they were able to like leave she couldn't she couldn't afford to leave because again 13 kids during the great depression in germany you're not going to get far to this daily routine of violence peter became twisted and formed an unhealthy friendship with the dog catcher who lived in the same building. I want you all to look up dog catchers back in the day. They were vicious people. At the age of nine, Peter pushed a friend off a raft as they played on the river Rhine. When another boy jumped in to try and help the drowning youngster, Peter held him under the water until he suffocated. The death of the two boys was attributed to an accident and Peter was cleared of any blame. When Peter turned 16, he ran away after learning of his father being sentenced to three years in jail for raping his 13-year-old sister. So before we continue, let's establish a few things, okay? One, Peter was more likely born as a product of rape. Two, Peter was brought up in a very violent home. 
where he witnessed his own father rape his mother and sisters. Three, he formed an unhealthy attachment to a dog catcher in his building. Four, he killed his two friends and held no remorse. He got away with it. And five, he lived in a country where obviously their therapy came in the form of either lobotomy, alcohol, or the insane asylum. So already, all this factors into him becoming a psychopath and then going on murder sprees. So for those who are like, well, I wonder how, why he became the way that he became. Well, I just read off a whole list of why. Young Peter lived by his wits and often stole food and clothing to survive. He would be in and out of jail for the next 24 years and claimed his brutal treatment in the penal system made him hell-bent on revenge on society. No, buddy, I think that's called having daddy issues. He was considered a charming and handsome young man and his looks and demeanor attracted a lot of women to him, but because he lacked the social skills, awareness, and empathy, he never had any lasting relationships with them, nor was he ever capable of falling in love. His quote-unquote, his first victim of rape and murder would be a 10-year-old girl by the name of Christine Klein. Peter had just been released from jail yet again and was prowling the streets looking for a place to rob when he came across this inn in Wolfestas. The following morning, morning, Christine's father came to wake his daughter up, and when he realized that she had been murdered, he was just enraged. Angered, he pointed his finger at his brother, Otto. Okay, here's the thing. The night before uh, Christine passed away, was murdered, Christine's father and Ota had a huge argument, a big disagreement, where Ota had screamed out that he would do something that he would remember all of his life. He said, I'm going to do something to you or your family, and you will never forget it. So, obviously, Christine's father is going to be like um hey we we he he threatened my family last night he threatened me last night it's got to be him but because there was not enough evidence to prove it the judge threw the case out no one would have suspected that it was peter who killed her and they would only know of this 18 years later here's something scary to listen to so the war broke out and he was called to serve but because he was a narcissist he deserted his station causing him to be thrown in jail there in jail it was said he purposefully got himself into trouble so he could be put in solitary confinement. There he would think of the most violent fantasies, which involved going on murder sprees, blowing up people, setting people on fire, as many as he could. That was his fantasy. That was his wet dream. So then people thought it would be a good idea to let him out because that makes sense. So he was released in 1921, where he ended up staying with his sister in a small town of Altenburg. There he met his future wife, a former sex worker, who funny enough went to jail because she shot a man who stood her up at the altar like, yes, get your feelings out. Work through them. I get it. Your feelings were hurt. He stood you up. What an a-hole. But maybe just don't shoot the guy. Like, ladies, if your guy jilted you, don't shoot them because we don't want to see you in jail. Women are supposed to run the world. How can you run the world if you're in jail? Eventually, they wed and lived in Altenburg until 1925 when Curtin gaining employment in a factory as a molder, just like his dear old dad. He also became an active trade unionist. The couple moved to Dusseldorf to find work and Curtin gradually found his self-control eroding. Between 1925 and 1928, he attacked four women in Dusseldorf, strangling them to the point of unconsciousness, often during sex. There, when they were unconscious, he would then proceed to rape them. Remember how I said that when he was in jail in solitary confinement, he had these fantasies? Among those violent fantasies, because he was normal, no doubt, he had the fantasies of setting women on fire and then just watching them burn as he masturbates. So one night, uh, February 9th, 1929, 
1989, he kidnapped an eight-year-old girl, Rosa Holliger, as she walked down a Dusseldorf street. She was stabbed three times and found under a hedge. After he had raped and murdered her, he then set her body on fire with petrol, and then later he recalled to the authorities, the police, that as he watched her body burn, he um, had an orgasm. I don't know what else to say on this matter, so I'm just gonna move on. One of his victims, Maria Kuhn, was stabbed 24 times and she miraculously survived, but she was one of the very few that escaped death from this guy. In that town, many young women and men were kidnapped and murdered horrendously, and it was at this time that he was known as the vampire of Germany or the werewolf of Germany. One of the most horrendous crimes occurred on the 23rd of August in 1929 as people in the town of Fle were celebrating an annual fair. Peter approached two foster sisters as they left the fair and asked the older one, Louise Lenzen, 14, to run an errand for him. He said, would you be very kind and get some cigarettes for me? I'll look after the little girl. Louise agreed, but as soon as she was out of sight, he strangled five-year-old Gertrude and slit her throat. When Louise returned, she too was dragged off the path, strangled and almost decapitated with Curtin's pocket knife. The attack, many of them fatal, continued throughout the summer and autumn of 1929. On the 7th of November, after killing five-year-old Gertrude Alberman, Peter set a map to a local newspaper showing where her body could be found under a pile of builder's debris. She had been strangled and stabbed 35 times. German police had few clues to go on. Those who had survived the attacks were only able to give a basic description of a tall white man who could have fitted half the residents of Dusseldorf. It takes a man to stab a child. On May 14, 1930, there was a woman by the name of Maria Boldick who arrived in Dusseldorf looking for work. This was during the time of the Great Depression in Germany, so there wasn't a lot of work to go around. There wasn't a lot of places to stay. It was just everyone was down in the dumps in Germany. So she's walking around and she she bumps into a man who offered to help her look for a boarding house where she could stay the night. As they're walking and chatting, he turns around the corner and she realizes that he brought her to this alleyway that will like lead her to like a shortcut through the park. And as he's like trying to convince her to go through the shortcut with him through the park, she just remembers all the articles that she read about the, like the vampire of Germany and or the werewolf of Germany. She's like, yeah, I'm good. Never mind. Like they get into an argument. He's like, hey, I'm helping you here. And she's like, I'm freaking out. No, thank you. Another man steps out and is like, hey, what are you doing? Leave her alone. And she's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for intervening for me. Da, da, da. The first man um just ends up leaving. He's like, whatever. And he just pisses off. And so that just leaves the second guy and Maria. So she ended up disclosing to him that she was looking for a place to stay. And he was like, oh, I have a place that my wife and I own. You just want to stay the night there. Um, Come stay with us. And so she's like, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Y'all want to take a gander at what this guy's name is? Five points to Gryffindor. That's right. His name is Peter Curtin. So she unknowingly went home with the vampire of Germany. So they're walking back to his place. And when they get to his apartment, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, BT dubs, my wife isn't really home. Let's play hanky panky in the bedroom. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I just tried to get out of this not 10 minutes ago with that first dude and you're trying to pull a fast one on me? Like, what the actual fuck? And he's like, no, 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 you're right. Where are my manners? I'm so sorry. Let me show you a different place for you to stay. You're absolutely right. Boundaries. And so she's like, I thought so. So they end up leaving his home and they get um, on the tram and shortly after they arrive to the woods. And already I'm like, this is not gonna end well. To my ladies, 
Can I give you some advice? If a man you've never met before and he's like, let's go on a walk and he takes you to the fucking woods, stab him, trip him, run over him. I don't care. Just get away from him, okay? Because one of you is going to end up on a podcast. Don't let it be you, okay, babes? Just don't. I remember one time my sister, when she went on a date with this one guy, she had told me, oh yeah, we're going hiking. This was like her third date with this man. And I was like, I just looked at her and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you crazy? All I'm saying, nothing ever good comes out of a hike with a man on a first or second date because a lot of those quote-unquote hiking dates, they turn disastrous. Just have some self-awareness for your safety is all I'm trying to say. Go to the movies go to a restaurant. Don't be cute. Don't try to be adventurous, okay? Adventurous gets you murdered. Leaving it at that. They're at the woods and she's like, uh, we're at the woods. And all of a sudden, he grabs her by the neck and the entire time she's pleading for him to let her go. He refuses to listen and instead he rapes her. After he's done, he takes her back to the tram and lets her go. Later on, the police ask him why he let her go. He responds to quote-unquote, I had no intention of killing her as she offered no resistance. I also did not think that Bulldog would be able to find her way back to my apartment in the rather obscure Mountain Manor Strasse. She remembered everything. She remembered the man, what he looked like, his name, the street, and his apartment, and she would not forget him. That being said, she was terrified and traumatized because this was a time where everyone victim blamed. Not that time has changed much in terms of supporting and hearing the victims. Marie was so traumatized and ashamed that instead of telling the police, she wrote a letter to her friend to talk about what happened but the letter never made it to her friend instead it was accidentally mailed to a woman who read it and then immediately went to the police and reported it shortly after the detectives tracked maria down and had her take them to where she was assaulted eventually she led the officers back to 71 matamaner strasse and saw curtain on the stairs she was so scared to point out that that was him even in the presence of many police officers and by the time she did open her mouth he had packed a bag and fled Peter moved into an apartment nearby and told his wife what happened with Maria Bulldick. He told her he would be sent to jail for many years and she, without his earnings, would be destitute. Peter recalled later, she raved that I would take my life, then she would do the same since her future was completely without hope. He then came up with a plan. He confessed to her that he was the vampire of Dusseldorf and said she should take advantage to obtain the large reward being offered for information leading to his capture. She eventually agreed. But before he was going to leave, he had planned to make one more attack, a farewell attack, but what he didn't know was that his wife had immediately gone to the police to report the crime. So part of the plan was that he was going to meet his wife first at St. Roach's Church and then he was going to go off on his final murder spree. And when he showed up, well, the police were there. Fucking finally, I say. The police arrested him and there Peter just word vomited his crimes much to the police's horror and chagrin. I mean, he just upchucks every single detail and information of how he murdered the girls and the women, how he raped their bodies after they were dead, and how he would sometimes even eat them. So they haul ass to jail where they took him to trial. There he recounted in vivid detail all the unspeakable things he had did to the victim. He even had a photogenic memory so he could pinpoint point every object in the rooms that he had raped and murdered his victims. Later on in court, he actually tried to plead not guilty, but at this point, it was evident that it was he who had committed these crimes. He was eventually convicted of nine murders and sentenced to death. On the night before his execution, he ate a last meal of Weiner Schnitzel. It's fried potatoes and white wine and made the 
comment to a psychiatrist about being able to hear his own blood flowing. At 6 a.m. on the 2nd July of 1931, despite protests by the German Humanitarian League, he was led to the guillotine and beheaded. Oh my god. Firstly, I, I like to apologize if I traumatized any of you with all of this info dumping. I told you it was going to be rough, but I didn't think it was going to be this rough. I mean, I wrote the script and I'm just reading this and even after rereading it like five times, I'm still shocked and being like, holy shit. So that's my bad. Um, thank you for listening. If you made it this far, you did great. I, I hope you're okay. <laughs> DM me if you're just, just like throughout this entire episode, if you were like, what the actual shit, Sophia. Anyways, um, this one was a lot even for me to research. I half expect the FBI agents to just come barreling through my door and taking me calling my ass off to jail or the insane asylums because again you should see the history <laughs> on my computer because it's literally all of like the necrophilias or different serial killers and necrophilia like it's just it was just bad so um there you have it you had a history lesson and two stories of deranged monsters mary chrysler you filthy animals before i go i do want to say a couple things um i started a little ko-fi i think that's what it's called but it's like essentially where you can buy me like a coffee to help me it's like a little way of supporting me i was thinking of starting a patreon but i don't think i'm too cool for that but if you guys want to support me in other ways i started that um not saying you have to and a second thing i want to say is just a massive thank you um it means a lot that you guys are sticking around and listening to my podcast I, it just means a lot to me you guys are the reason why i'm creating these episodes so that was it so if you guys have any questions or recommendations um of the next person i should cover feel free to slide into the dms on my instagram account at not another scary story or even at art and pia but yeah i hope to see you in the next episode soon stay hydrated and be kind to yourself and i'll see ya not another scary story